trust the movement I negate the chaos Uplift the negative I'll show up at the table again and again Welcome to Grassroot Ohio Conversations with everyday people working on important issues here in Columbus and all around Ohio I'm Carolyn Harding and today I'm talking with Pat Morita and Mary Olson Advocates for the United Nations Treaty Banning Nuclear Weapons, which enters into force today, Friday, January 22, 2021. Pat Morita has worked to stop the threats posed by nuclear weapons since the 1980s as a volunteer with the Ohio Nuclear Weapons Freeze Campaign and the Sierra Club. She served as an executive committee member of the Ohio Sierra Club and is currently a core team member of the National Sierra Club's Nuclear Free Campaign. As a pharmacist, she well understands the deadly effects of ionizing radiation on people and other life forms. Pat lives in Columbus, Ohio. Mary Olson is acting director of the Gender and Radiation Impact Project. She served as staff biologist and senior radioactive waste policy analyst at US-based Nuclear Information and Resource Service. Her work on radiation education led her to the question of whether biological sex is a factor in radiation harm. Her paper, Atomic Radiation is More Harmful to Women, was featured at the Vienna Conference on the Humanitarian Impacts of Nuclear Weapons, the UN Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty Review, the International Committee of the Red Cross Asia Meeting in St. Petersburg, Russia, and many other conferences. She is currently raising funds to support a 2021 project to define a new gender-inclusive basis for radiation protection standards to help prevent unnecessary radiation exposure and reduce radiation harm. We just witnessed the inauguration of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris to take the leadership and unify the United States of America. And today, the United Nations Nuclear Weapon Ban Treaty, a landmark treaty, enters into force. Let's talk about this treaty. Let's start with you, Pat. Well, hi, Carolyn, and thank you so much for having me on here today. I, I, I love your show and what you do in the community as well. So, yeah, so, well, um, Mary wanted me to tell this story that in 1981, uh, my son gave me Carl Sagan's book, Cosmos, and I read it, and the last chapter was about nuclear weapons and nuclear war. And I was horrified, and I thought this could destroy the planet. So I've been working on, on um, <clears throat> nuclear weapons and nuclear power and opposing them since, since that time. And um, <clears throat> I'm so pleased that, this, that uh, today the UN Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons comes into force and the world is declaring nuclear weapons to be illegal under international law. And it's a remarkable feat and, and the culmination of, of years of work by anti-war and human rights activists around the world. And it makes a case that nuclear weapons are in fundamental conflict with basic humanitarian sensibilities and with international law. And so the, his, the, the history of the treaty, it was negotiated over about a five month period back in 2017. And that July, the, the treaty was adopted by a vote of the participating nations 
which was 122 favored it and only one opposed it. Uh, of course, there weren't any nuclear armed nations or their allies in, in uh, those negotiations. But uh, in fact, they continue to oppose it uh, as of now. So the treaty was written uh, to enter into force 90 days after it, had, after it had been ratified by 50 nations. So the 50th nation, which was Honduras, ratified it in October. So that's how, how it is entering into force today. Mary, what, what can you tell us about this landmark treaty? Peace is breaking out. You know, I have a lot of colleagues who've given their lives doing the kind of work that has led to this treaty. As Pat said, it's the result of everybody who's been working for nuclear disarmament. And many of these colleagues are feeling very discouraged that the nuclear states are not signed on. I see it a little differently. Alfred Einstein said that we couldn't solve problems with the same thinking that created them. And for quite a long time, we've been trying to get the nuclear armed states to lead the effort for a nuclear free future. They will certainly be part of it. But the fact that the rest of the world is now given the authority to declare their lands and waters nuclear free is so significant because so much of the world is nuclear free. But back when I was a college student, New Zealand stood up and said, we are nuclear free zone. And two nuclear armed nations, France and the United States took ships down into those harbors in New Zealand and said, no, you're not. And at that time, New Zealand did not have international law behind it being able to declare itself nuclear free. Now every nation has the right and the invitation it's nobody's going to march into anybody else's country and take away nuclear weapons. That isn't going to happen. But as of today, WMDs, whether they be chemical, biological, or nuclear, are all illegal on our planet. As of today, wow, in my lifetime, I really didn't think I'd wait to you know, live to see this. I was five years old when I first discovered what a nuclear weapon was, and it altered my entire lifetime. What a day. Let's all celebrate. It's Here in the United States, we get to educate each other that this is not a threat. This is an opportunity. Well, just like we saw Kamala Harris, the first vice president woman, and the woman got the vote in 2020, um, 1920, it started by the states. It started with the smaller groups, and then it expanded. And so these brave countries that have signed on to this have set an example and raised the awareness to all of us in our countries that still support um, mm -hmm. nuclear weapons. Can you tell us, Pat and also Mary, how you got involved in this with your work and the work that you're currently working on? Well, I've, I've been involved, uh, you know, as, as a volunteer with the Sierra Club and I started that in the 1990s and uh, really got back into nuclear, nuclear power and weapons in the early 2000s and, and working locally in, in Ohio. But there's just, when you do work on these issues, you, these things come across, you know, major events like this, you can't help but notice it. And we just want people to, we want to get the word out, you know, how important it is for us to back up all these countries 
And they are, stand, they are going to be standing together. And um, as this treaty goes into force today, they are prohibited from nuclear weapons activities. And that also means that countries that ratify the treaty, they can't, they can't not only not, not manufacture them, but they can't have ships entering their harbors that have weapons and they can't uh, store the weapons of other countries on their territories and so forth. And, and they're also obliged to provide assistance to people that have been affected by the use of nuclear weapons and, and, and also provide some environmental remediation. And that includes uranium mining and places like the Marshall Islands where the United States tested and other areas of the Pacific Islands where other nations tested, parts of Australia, parts of Africa. I mean, there's so many test areas that we just are not that aware of. But I wanna just for a moment take my awareness of, of Pat Morita and say, answer your question about what brought me into this work. It's people like Pat who have stood up in their own communities and their own states who were standing together when I first got a job at Nuclear Information and Resource Service on radioactive waste issues. And while Pat's recent work has been on energy and energy policy, the real point of it is that she and the people she's been working with have prevented so much radioactive waste that would be made by nuclear power reactors that are basically, to hear me out here, it's a technology that's different than nuclear weapons, but fission is fission. And this is fission 24-7, so it's kind of like a nuclear weapon with the clutch in, and it makes as much radioactive waste at one nuclear power plant in a year, per year, as 1,100 of the weapons that were used against Hiroshima, Japan. It's a tremendous amount of radioactivity made day in and day out at, at energy sites. So the new treaty doesn't actually either endorse or revoke nuclear energy. It's silent, it basically says we're just silent on nuclear energy. Um, so there's still a lot of work to do and Pat's been doing it. And I wanna take her hat off, my hat off to her because there's a huge victory that she's just recently had. And um, thank you, Pat, for all the work you've done. And I'm gonna um, add on to that. Pat um, was the first activist that came and supported our campaign, which was Radioactive Waste Alert which is a campaign to raise awareness that um, Ohio is taking the liquid and solid frack waste and dumping it in areas people have no idea and had no idea that this there was this waste. And we had put a huge sign up on Stelter Road near the airport saying radioactive waste alert. And Pat was there. She was the first person that stepped up and showed up for this issue and I appreciate it so much because we know there are many people that have paved the way for us and we have, we have taken the baton and kept going on this fight for sustainability and for our water and our air and our soil. And Pat, I'd like you to tell folks about your event this Friday um, at Battelle. Uh, okay. Yes. So, um, so this, uh, <laughs> in honor of this, uh, of this marvelous event, uh, the community, community members are holding a rally um, <clears throat> uh, in the early afternoon today at Battelle Memorial Institute headquarters, and that's in the university area. And it will just be finished by the time uh, this program is on the air. In the Why did you pick Battelle, Pat? Well, because right here in Columbus, Battelle guides most of the nuclear weapons research and development in the country. 
They manage six nuclear weapon la weapons laboratories from California to Long Island. If you go to their website, it does not say nuclear weapons when it, when it talks about these laboratories. It th says things like security. Uh, it's gotten, Medell, Patel has gotten billions of dollars for research on nuclear power and weapons. And it's a driving force behind the new small modular reactors. So anyway, we're going to be there. We're going to be urging them to divest from nuclear weapons. They're now illegal. And to move to life-affirming work, work that, that actually provides, you know, health and works for equity instead of dropping bombs on where they get dropped. Not, not only where the uranium is mined, but where the bombs are dropped. Uh, it's, all, it's on marginalized and people of color and, and, and people that don't have the ability to, to oppose it. The, uh, the cost of remediation of just production in the United States, the contamination that's been caused by nuclear weapons production is estimated by the Congressional uh, Government uh, Accounting Office <laughs> to be uh, um, $500 billion and more sites are going to be added. It could be up to a trillion dollars. So we're going to tell Battelle now's the time to stop act, to stop adding to this legacy. And they can actually start doing things like working on the uh, cleaning up contaminated areas. Definitely. This is Grassroot Ohio. I'm Carolyn Harding, and today I'm talking with Mary Olson and Pat Morita. They're both advocates for the UN Treaty Banning Nuclear Weapons, which is entering into force today. Mary, you're a biologist, and you've had a varied career that led you to what you are focused on right now, which is the acting director of the Gender and Radiation Impact Project. Can you tell us about your work? I had many years working on radioactive waste policy at the national level. And in the course of that work, I was an educator and I gave a lot of public talks. And one day a woman raised her hand and asked me if radiation was more harmful to her as a woman compared to a man. I immediately gave her an answer about pregnancy, which was a good answer, but she clarified that she wasn't asking about pregnancy. She was asking about her own body. And I had never, in the 20 years of my work at that point, heard biological sex as a potential factor in radiation harm. In fact, Dr. Arjun Makajani and Institute for Energy and Environmental Research had written a paper uh, some years earlier, but I missed the memo. And this was just, I had to give the speaker's fallback, which is, I'm sorry, I'll get back to you once I've looked into it. Um, so it was so shocking to me that I actually forgot the question and lost her contact information. So when I finally did the research myself, looking at data from the survivors of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, um, which my teacher, Dr. Rosalie Bertel, sent me to that data set, um, because it's the only one that's large enough to look at patterns that includes all ages and both sexes. And I have to acknowledge that it comes from the action of my government, our government, with a premeditated decision to destroy, annihilate cities full of people. And using the data ties me to that. So I always have to go inward and acknowledge that horror and wish that it had never happened. But as the only data set that actually does reflect radiation across birth to age 80 and has 60 years of tracking 
it's truly the only place where we can ask these questions because all of the other data sets that are readily available are nuclear workers who are primarily male and uniformly adult. We don't have the, the whole wad in that set of numbers. So I looked and the answer is yes. There's actually a huge difference between males and females. And so I wrote the title of my paper, hoping that the woman in North Carolina might find it, atomic radiation is more harmful to women. And I'll just give you the nutshell here. We know that radiation is more harmful to children. They're growing, their DNA and their cells are dividing, and so it's more vulnerable. But the shocker is that when you look at this data that was published by the National Academy of Science in 2006, um, anyone can find it online for no charge, comparing boys who were exposed to the A-bomb to girls who were exposed to the A-bomb. The girls got twice as much cancer across their lifetime as did the boys two times in the youngest children birth to five years. They were tracked by age, they were tracked over 60 years, cancers were counted, cancer deaths were counted. This is cancer incidence, it's double in girls compared to boys. And then you look at the adults and there's still a difference. For every two men who died of cancer, this is now cancer death, two men die, three women died, which is 50% more changed my habits of going into the field and being exposed um, when I found that pattern. And in fact, when the plot is made across the entire population um, of data, the pink line reflecting the female data is always higher than the blue line in every age group. So this means that radiation was more harmful to all of the females in every age group across with the largest difference being in the youngest children. And there's now new research going on to begin to ask and answer the question of why. But even before we know why, this is a huge siren going off because in the United States, the regulators who give licenses for nuclear activities only look at data from the adult male. And they have an individual that they call the reference man who's defined as being the individual who gets any dose of radiation. Now there's a few exceptions and in the medical field, they have their own practices and standards, but I'm talking about all the nuclear power plants, all the radioactive waste sites, all those, if they have any state regulation at all, sites that are taking other types of, of radiation, they only look at the impact to an adult male. And if you take the, the little girl's rate and the adult male's rate, there's a 10 times, a tenfold difference. That means that globally, the cancer from radiation has been underreported by a very large factor for the entire female population. Wow. There's just no way around it. We got to change what we do and say about radiation. We need to do it pretty darn quick here. It appears that you're doing research to, to come up with a new, a new standard. Well, I did an analysis of existing data. I'm hoping very much that young people who are coming into their own studies and graduate work will adopt the huge number of questions associated with why is there a difference between males and females? Why is it biggest in the young children? You can unfold you know, 10 and 20 questions just from those two. I'm so hoping that people who are getting their PhDs and MDs will do that work. I have only a little nonprofit. I don't have the capacity I'm in the part of my life where I'm, I'm an instigator, I'm a reporter, I'm an analyst, I'm, you know, doing that level of work, not starting off with a PhD. So 
it needs to be done. We need it done now. We need it done yesterday. And so my development of a new reference individual is to open the conversation. It actually doesn't require research. Uh, the reference man is defined by a paragraph. He's so tall. He weighs so much. He lives in this kind of climate. He has this kind of lifestyle. So I'm going to consult with a lot of people and um, put together the parameters for a reference little girl and propose her because someone else can make it a little different and maybe they'll accept that one. It should be a big dialogue. Well, with my own primary issue, which is the uh, radium-226, 228 radionuclides that are prevalent in Marcellus and Utica shale, which is the uh, radionuclides in frac waste. ODNR, they have their regulations of how much exposure supposedly is safe. So obviously, they're probably using the same standards of the um, male that's so many pounds, 160 pounds or whatever, and they're not measuring by a, a little girl that's five years old how much she can handle for safe exposures. Am I correct in saying that? You are correct. And even more than how much she can handle, how much is she getting? Because her lifestyle is so different than her daddy. Now, a lot of regulators make the argument that they're protected and more safe, that because they have smaller lungs, they get a, a smaller dose when there's airborne contamination. So there's a big, huge, complicated discussion, but I want to have it. I want to trigger it by proposing that we should protect the those who are most impacted. And according to the survivors of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the U.S. nuclear attack on those cities, and that data is what the world regulators use. It's their gold standard. Problems with it, but it's still their gold standard. It's that data that shows that these little girls were more impacted than the little boys and both more impacted than the adults. So we should be regulating at the point of greatest harm. There's absolutely no excuse for doing anything else anymore. And there's a moral question, there's a moral question of, of why we are doing this, why we're irradiating people in the first place, you know, why are we doing this? Exactly. And also a recognition that back in the 1940s, radioactivity that was human activity was inside big fences and barbed wire and military males were sent in to work with it. The problem is nobody stopped to look, listen, or evaluate when those same standards developed for those military males were then turned to complete communities with babies and toddlers and pregnant women and everybody, you know. And so the reference man was appropriate back then. He's just needs to retire. That's what needs to happen. So in this environment, um, how can we use this important scientific information to change the policies of our lawmakers who are, you know, continuing to deregulate um, radioactive waste and continuing to support and send funding to nuclear weapons research and development? How can we use this incredible information to affect change? Well, I think we're still at an education step because most of these regulators don't even know that this gender-based difference exists. That moment where I couldn't answer the woman who asked me the question and even forgot the question because it was so disturbing to me is because we as a community concerned about radiation have never looked at this. And so it's not that they know and there's failing to act. Most people don't know that, that biological sex is a huge factor in the outcome 
of radiation exposure. So education's first step. Next step is to acknowledge that they may be comfortable with what they're seeing about a standard they're using, but say it's that they shouldn't be. They shouldn't be comfortable because it doesn't reflect this huge piece of information that's relatively new. Mary, how can people get information? Do you have a website and what more information? My website is genderandradiation.org, and the and is spelled out. So genderandradiation.org. Um, you can also find information on the Institute for Energy and Environmental Research. They had a campaign years ago called Healthy from the Start, and their website is ieer.org. Most of my uh, accessible materials are video. My board is asking me to please create some more fact sheets and, and usable materials. So people should feel free to contact me directly. And there's a contact form on the website, genderandradiation.org. So we have about a minute left. I actually read the treaty. I've never read a treaty in my life, but I felt like I needed to read it and I was inspired by it and um, energized to educate people and to get people on board and to raise awareness in Columbus, Ohio about what's going on in Battelle and what's going on in our water, air and soil with radioactive waste and how it's impacting my, me and my daughter and our daughters and granddaughters to be in the future. If you had one word of advice, because one thing I saw, Mary, I read your blog and I saw that you give honor to the women that have come before you and that have taught you and inspired you. What would you like to give inspiration to those who will take the baton from where you are and move forward? And then we'll go to Pat. Evolutionary change comes in baby steps and then big surges and then regrouping and then the leap of faith. And so people who jump in now are taking that leap of faith and I thank them. Yeah, and you can join an organization uh, you know, that, that's working on these things and you'll get to know people that, that care about these things. And, and there is some, something uh, that I can, you know, the International Campaign for the Abolition of Nuclear Weapons, uh, they have a, a, a thing called Don't Bank on the Bomb. And it's a project that then they put pressure on institutions to not lend money to these to nuclear weapons and nuclear power. And, and their website is, has a strong, it's already had a big effect and it's going to have a bigger effect now that the treaty has gone into force. Excellent. May I give their website? ICANN is International Campaign for the Abolition of Nuclear Weapons, I-C-A-N-W dot O-R-G. All right. That's our time. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank, Thank you. you, Carol and, and Mary too. Thank you. In addition to our Friday 5 p.m. broadcast on WGRN.org, Grassroot Ohio will now air on Sundays at 2 p.m. on WCRSFM.org, 92.798.3 FM in Columbus, and at 4 p.m. on WEJPLP, 107.1 FM in Wheeling, Moundsville, West Virginia. You can also find us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to Grassroot Ohio, 94.1 FM, WGRN.org. We air Friday nights at 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and you can listen to all our previous shows archived on the top post of our Grassroot Ohio Facebook page. 
There's a time to listen and learn, a time to organize and strategize, and a time to stand up, fight back. 